You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Hi, Reed. Hello. I am so thrilled I have Reed Mittenbuehler on Lit Up. Um, I have a bit of backstory about Reed before we dive into all of his amazing books and accomplishments. Um, and it's personal. So I uh, read this proposal um, about this Arctic explorer called Peter Freuken about three and a bit years ago. And on the day that we acquired the book um, with now HarperCollins, I went on the first date with my now fiance. And you know why? I was the coolest like first date woman was because I was on a high from, you know, being able to talk to Reed about this incredible story he discovered, but also about the man himself. Like I was able to go to a date and tell this man I was trying to impress all about this Arctic explorer that had, you know, lost a foot that had fought in the resistance, like all these great stories. And it's all thanks to our guest today, Reed Mittenbuehler. That is why we're now engaged. Thank you. <laughs> oh my God, I'm I'm touched. That's a fantastic story. I had no idea. It's funny because whenever I do a book, you always think like, what from this is the story that people will take away, you know, when they're leaning over a dinner table, you know, talking about something that excites them. Like, does this book fit that? That's something I always think about. So that story, wow. That's, that's wonderful. Well, okay, so everyone, we're here to talk about Reed's third book, and it's called Wonderlust, An Eccentric Explorer, An Epic Journey, and a Lost Age. Um, now, I would say this book has probably thousands, if not tens of thousands, of the most extraordinary anecdotes to bring up for dinner, dinner party fodder, and we'll get into that. But beforehand, Reed, like... Tell us a bit about, like, who are you and why are you drawn to all these crazy characters? I mean, I guess every book starts with you get interested in a topic. And it might be a topic, you know, you've had interest in before. So my first book with a history of bourbon, American whiskey. I was just interested in whiskey, you know, and you see a story and you see it take shape. And I was like, well, this product 
it kind of molds itself to the history of the United States. And as the United States evolved, it influenced the product itself. And it's full of characters and organized crime. It's really a, a cool story. Classic animation, my second book, Wild Minds. It's the same kind of thing. It's this very American story. Um, it's really a story about creators and creativity and how creativity works. And I'm always just interested in that. And I saw this narrative. And then this story, this story had a funny beginning. I was at the Explorers Club on New York's Upper East Side. And it's this great old mansion. Kind of looks like it could be the set in a Wes Anderson film. It's got the leaded glass windows and the wood paneling and the Persian rug. And it's just, it's, it's an interesting place. And a friend of mine was a member. And he told me, we'll go after hours. We'll catch up over a couple of whiskeys. Whiskey book. <laughs> and just catch up. So we go to the trophy room walk up this creaky staircase and in the trophy room on the very top floor and when you walk in there's the pelt of a siberian tiger rumored to have eaten 48 men um, they've got these tusks that were donated by teddy roosevelt around this fireplace i mean all this and paintings and just artifacts that have been collected over the years and we're sitting there and there's this painting this big painting over the fireplace of this guy it's not a bad painting it's not a great painting either it's a little it's a little weird looks a little goofy he's got a peg leg like a pirate's peg leg but he's wearing this like sport coat he's got this big bushy beard he's a mountain of a man he's six and a half feet tall and we're sitting there drinking and eventually we're like wait who is this guy who gets their painting or portrait over the fireplace in a place like this go up to it there's a little plaque underneath the painting it says peter freuken it's like well who's peter freuken so i look him up and all of these stories just explode out of, you know, out of the internet. And a lot of those stories, as I learned by researching the book, you know, a lot of them are a little bit embellished or not even true. It's a lot of stuff other people have said. It's kind of, you know, his story has taken on a life of its own. And, you know, that's, that's where the book came from. I just went down the rabbit hole of, of Peter Freiken, who lived arguably the most interesting life of the 20th century. The way I recognized him was through this very iconic Irving Penn photograph of him, you know, wearing this huge fur coat with a woman. And there's a New Yorker profile of, you know, story about him that kind of resurfaces every year. So when I got this proposal about this man and I saw that image, I've always been drawn to him and wanted to know his stories. For everyone who's listening, Tell us, like, what is the Explorers Club? Like, do explorers go and hang out there? Who founded it? I forget the exact year it was founded, but it was close to 100 years ago um, by explorers. And, you know, this is kind of at the very tail end of what people call the heroic age of exploration. When those last big achievements in exploration, you know, like being the first person to reach the poles or the first person to scale the highest peaks on the world. And so the club was founded around that era, and it, it's had a lot of very notable members, like Thor Heyerdahl, you know, Edmund Hillary, Peter Freuken was a member. You know, nowadays the club does a lot more work, you know, with science and climate change and, you know, archaeology and things like that. It's less about that old swashbuckling type of explorer, you know, with the full sail mustache, you know, claiming other lands in the name of inevitability, you know, that sort of thing. It's It's... That's sort of its older history. It's a much different place now, but it's still in the same building. And the building just fits that look. I mean, you can just, when you walk in, there's you know, 
Remember, there was a floor-standing globe and you know, these deep leather armchairs. You can just imagine, you know, all of these these this older generation of explorers with you know interesting facial hair, you know, these just sort of sitting around a fireplace, competing with each other to tell the night's best story. You know, drinking snifters of brandy or tumblers of whiskey or whatever their choice is for the night. Um, so it's a place that's very romantic, and when you walk in. Um, it just takes you back into this other era and it, it takes you back to the era I explore in the book a lot. You know, it's just, it's really this lost age. It's yeah. Well, I'm wishing that we had some whiskey with us right now. <laughs> um, something I loved both in the book and just about Peter's story is the, his beginning. You know, can you tell us about how he thought he wanted to be a doctor but what happened in those very early years to push him into this very different trajectory? Yeah, so in Freakin's time, a lot of young people, a lot of young men grew up reading books written by explorers the same way generations today read comic books. Um, There's a big market for it. There was a lot of exploring going on, a lot of these adventures and exploits. And so it was a very romantic form of literature that a lot of people are reading. He was in medical school, University of Copenhagen. Um, he came from a pretty privileged sort of middle-class family. Um, he was in school. And one day, this man was brought into the hospital. People thought he was dead. He had had an accident down on the docks. And he's wheeled in. And then someone noticed, well, he's not dead. Um, there's a little bit of life going on there. And so, you know, over the course of the next year, one of Freakin's professors, his doctor, fixes the guy. And it was a big case. Medical journals are reporting on it. Everyone's coming from far and wide to see all these vanguard new medical techniques. This guy's using to put this man back together. And, and, and the man recovers. The dock worker recovers. And he's waving to everyone, thank you. Thank you for saving me. You know, thank you for giving me back my life. And then he comes back, you know, a day later, a day or two later, dead. He'd been hit by a streetcar. And it just kind of hits freaking like a bolt of lightning. You know, it's this, maybe this isn't what I want to do with my life. Life is short. It can end immediately. I want to live it to its fullest. And at the time, so he drops out of medical school and he starts taking philosophy classes, not because he had any particular interest in philosophy. It was just because the University of Copenhagen at that time just required all of its students to just take a lot of philosophy. He just sort of had to take them. Starts hanging out with the theater crowd. He's a very performative person. He loved movies when movies really became more of a thing. This is in the early 20th century, 1906. Um, he loved theater. And he fell in with this theater troupe, and they did a comedy about the explorer Ludwig Milius Erikson. And Freakin, you know, it's like, yeah, it's funny, but you're just a bunch of college kids. You don't really know what you're, you know, they're just kind of going after this guy, making fun. It was pretty snarky. And he kind of got curious. Well, I want, you know, I want to know what this guy's really like. So he goes to Milius Erikson's home. He just returned from the Danish literary expedition up to Northern Greenland, introduces himself and basically talks his way into Erikson's next expedition, the, the Denmark expedition. It was a three-year expedition to Eastern Northern Greenland. Um, Erickson looks at him and he sees this strapping young man, you know, with the same glint in his eye as Erickson has. And he started out as the stoker on the steamship that, that took them there. And so his first three years in Greenland, 
it's one of the many periods of Firkin's life where there's all these adventures. He almost dies. At one point, he almost loses his mind because he's in deep isolation out on the edge of the ice cap, you know, living living by himself for a scientific experiment for this expedition. That expedition ended up losing um, several men, a couple of whom were very good friends of Firkin. He had befriended during the expedition. Uh, so that's 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 what kicked it off is just his wanderlust, his curiosity, and this desire to 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 grab life. Like you know what this is this medical school thing. This is like living life in a circle, not like living life in a line. I want to live life in a line. And told his parents. His parents actually encouraged it. They they were those kind of parents. They were like you know if this is what you want to do, we support you. At every point in his life, when something goes wrong, it is always you know, an opportunity for him to go in a new direction. I think that's very specific to his own perspective on things. Like certain people make opportunities happen. Um, It's not everyone. But what happened just because now we're, you know, you've set that scene. Can you talk us about maybe one of the most significant expeditions he went on, whether that's you know, in terms of what it achieved or even just what it, how it changed him? The answer to that is definitely the, the fifth Thule expedition. So Freuken, his best friend was Nude Rasmussen, which is a name that a lot of people know. He was a pretty famous explorer. And the fifth Thule expedition, so Rasmussen was from Greenland. He'd been born there. His dad was a missionary there. And he had grown up um, among the Inuit and, and the Danish population. They're kind of going back and forth, kind of part of two cultures. Um, he had Inuit heritage coming down to him from his mother's side. So he was fascinated by the, the culture of the Inuit. And he could see that the world was changing. The, world, the outside world was encroaching on this ancient way of life in, you know, among Arctic indigenous people, be they in Greenland or northern Canada, Alaska, Siberia, the Arctic nations. And you can see that their way of life is changing, and Rasmussen and Freikin wanted to record as much as they can. A lot of the old traditions, the old folklore, the myths, all of these things were passed down orally, and these communities still would have continued to do that, but there was a lot that these men feared would be lost. And so they wanted to go on this expedition called the Fifth Tule Expedition, which had cameras at the time. This is in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, and they wanted to record as much as they could just to make sure it didn't get lost. They wanted to write all this stuff down. The Inuit didn't usually write things down. They, they passed information orally. Um, and it's considered a landmark expedition of anthropology. It's very important. It's, it preserved a lot of information about this culture, which was quickly changing as it blended in with the rest of the outside world. Also, during this expedition, Freuken had this calamitous accident that ended up resulting in the loss of his foot. Um, this is one of the stories that if you just Google his name, you'll get all kinds of wild stuff. You know, he was trapped under his, this is true, he was trapped under his dog sled during a blizzard, but then, you know, chiseled his way out with his own frozen feces, which is a story that Franken might have been embellishing. Franken was a prankish raconteur. He liked to kind of pull people's legs. He had this 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 weird, horrible accident, and he ended up getting frostbite, and it got worse and worse. A few doctors told him, you know, you need to, you need to really rest this. You need to fix your foot. But he was always so eager and impulsive to get back into the action, get back into this expedition that he would disregard their warnings, and it ended up costing him. 
he ended up going back to Denmark and lost his foot. It had to be amputated. And when it did, he fell in this deep depression. Um, you know, and it was making national news in Denmark. You know, here you've got this person, this person of action, living this adventurous life, and they've lost their foot. It's so symbolic and it, it's existential, really. Like, what what will this person do now with their life? Kind of learn the power of positive thinking. And realize, you know, this doesn't, this will, my, I'll have to adapt, but I can still have an eventful life. And he went on then to do all these other pursuits uh, that ended up just turning his life into a kind of pinball. I mean, he was, then he starts going all over the world. He's traveling. He became a celebrity and a very successful writer. It inspired him to write his first novel. Um, and that novel is based on a lot of his experiences in the Arctic. Yeah. Now, that was something that just struck me about, like you mentioned, his mental aptitudes and how he was so conscious of the choices he made and the way he thought about things. Well, he certainly starts to know himself, you know, over the course of a life. Um, and I guess to that end, like you got to read these memoirs, you know, how often do you find a subject that has written thousands and thousands of pages about their psyche? There are memoirs published and unpublished, and then lots of correspondence. He was a big the correspondence is really where his personality would come out because the memoirs are for public consumption and things like that. But he, his language would get a lot dirtier and he'd be a lot more bawdy and he'll say things that to a friend that he's probably not thinking are going to get out wider. So, you know, that's, that's a really fun window into someone. And then his third marriage when he was much older to the woman in the famous Irving Penn photograph, Dagmar, that's where you in a lot of ways, see a man who's learned a lot of lessons from his previous marriages. And that one seemed much warmer. There was a glow to it. Um, much She was much younger than him, but you sense a kind of soulmate kind of thing going on there a lot more. Something I loved about, well, A, she has a great name, Dagmar, <laughs> his third wife. She was also a Vogue illustrator and illustrated the first collections of you know, Christian Dior, um, and quite an extraordinary woman in her own right. But I love it. They have a cookbook together, <laughs> which is probably one of my favorite kind of accessories to the book. Oh, so that cookbook, it was so funny. The cookbook of the seven seas, she was so into his exploring career. She wanted to kind of um, honor it. It came out posthumously after, after Freakin died. But it's interesting to read because it's recipes from all over the world. But then you see all of these little interesting tidbits from her perspective about Freuken that were very surprising. One of my favorites is for this guy who seemed so burly. You know, you see a picture of the man. He looks like, you know, he's just jumped off a Viking longship or something. But he actually had a very soft voice, a kind of demure, sort of modest voice. And so he was contradictory that, that way. He was really into proper etiquette and silverware, which I had no idea about. He would always drink hot chocolate to celebrate um, events and, you know, his grandkids, their birthdays, hot chocolate, and he'd always write them letters and all these kind of little touching notes about this guy who on the surface looks really burly, but on the inside could also be very sweet and tender. Well, he also advocated for foie gras to be banned didn't he, he in did. denmark and he and it worked successfully this was way yeah. 
yeah, this is crazy back in the like, 30s. Like here's a guy in, in the book when he's on these expeditions and there are moments where he's about to starve. I mean, they're starving. They're trapped out on the ice for months at a time. And, you know, the book can get pretty gory, you know, like they finally managed to capture a seal and they're you know, bashing the brains out and just slurping up the brains for this quick energy boost, you know, things like that. They're forced to eat their sled dogs. I mean, some pretty grisly stuff. And then, you know, later on in life, he looks at the production of foie gras where you're jamming a tube down a, a goose's throat and force feeding it to get the liver nice and fatty. And he's like, well, this is, this is disgusting. He, when he visited... Uh, South America and Central America, he hated bullfighting. He just mm. thought it was cruel. So for a man who spent so much of his life hunting animals and surviving, you know, and that, that could be something he inherited from the Inuit, where they, they really honored the animal's life. There was, you know, you weren't cruel to animals. You know, they were what supplied you with nourishment and food. I fell in love with him through the book, but I think a huge part of it, and it's an issue that I'm sure will come up when you're talking about the book is that he was imperfect. You know, how was it to come across things about him that you didn't like? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, it's not so much being hard to write about. He was so complex and he was so human. And when you're looking at a person's entire history, you'll see them at certain points in that history one way, and then you'll see them expressing an opinion that might be the opposite of what they had expressed 10 years earlier. And you get this sense that, well, people learn and people change and they evolve, they evolve with the times, and that, that's very human. Freakin was just so interesting, and it's a reminder that no interesting person, no person at all is without flaws. And so he had a lot of the same flaws that, that we all have. Um, and when you're writing a book about someone like this, you're constantly wondering what would they be like today if they were in our society and they had grown up in the context of these times versus the context of those times. And it would probably be very different. You know, like who who would they vote for? What political party would they, you know, belong for? Like all this kind of stuff. And so it's a reminder of how important it is to evaluate and judge history with that historical context. And there's a lot of debates going on right now about how we judge history, and a lot of people are you know, cherry-picking it to use it for ammunition and culture war battles and that kind of thing. And so, you know, when I came across that kind of stuff in Freikens Life, it was just a reminder, like, we always need to judge this stuff with context and remembering nuance and accepting the ambiguity of life. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this isn't something that makes Freikin unique and that he, he was a very heterodox thinker. He pushed back against approved narratives, the approved narratives of his time and the approved narratives of our time. This isn't something that makes him unique and different than all of us. This is actually something that makes him relatable and like all of us. To that end, like what, it, when you've spent this long inside another man's mind and bringing their life story as particularly one as an, ex, as extraordinary as this, how does it make you change your own life? I had a couple of friends read early drafts of the book, and I remember one good friend came back to me, and he, he, he liked it, and he was like, almost a little depressed. I'm like, how did this book make you depressed? It's such an inspiring life. He goes, well, that's, that's kind of why. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? With my no, there's so much to be inspired by with this guy, but they were like, I need to just, I need to go do more. I need to get out more. For me... You know, the thing that I really took away from this is 
Freiken lived in an age that was very analog. Um, and there were times in his life, and I loved reading about these times, he'd be stuck in the Arctic. And it might be a year before he got a mail shipment, you know, with newspapers giving him updates on the news. And so he was forced to be very present, very present with the people right in front of him at that moment and the environment around him right in that moment. And that was an analog age. And we're now in a digital age where we're living life through these filters. And, you know, these filters are, you know, have these algorithms involved that amplify outrage and I think really warp our perspective sometimes. They just really throw off our proportionality. And I would think about that with Freiken and I would think about how we're living today in this kind of alternative realm, whereas he totally didn't live in that. He lived in the realm of what was right in front of his face. And I think that that's something from the past that a lot of people um, could probably stand to get back a little bit more to, is remembering the people around us in our immediate communities, uh, making their lives a little more local, perhaps, that would hopefully restore a certain sense of calm and I think proportionality back into our lives that's been slowly leaking out as social media has kind of got its claws into us. And Freiken's story has inspired me. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, with heavy social media use, I was having a hard time focusing on books, you know, something I love. Mm. And since I pretty much, especially Twitter, I just cut it. I just don't even bother anymore. I got focused back. I got focused back and I started to enjoy books. So that's that's been probably one of the biggest takeaways for me. Yeah. So what are like what is that book one of the best books you've read in the last few years? I mean, when after you've been you've written the book and the research, like is there a book that you you think about often? Not so much a book I think about often, but there is a book, just for a recent example, several years ago, I started to read Somerset Maugham's Ashenden, and I just couldn't get into it, you know, because it's written in the 20s, and the language is a little antiquated, and, you know, it can be a little a little, little hard, hard reading, and I recently revisited it, and I loved it. I fell, I was reading, I was enjoying the language, I was enjoying the story. I wasn't distracted. The distraction that social media is kind of pushing on my brain before forced me to not enjoy this great novel. More recently, I really did enjoy it. And one of the reasons I wanted to read it is because mom, similar to Freiken, is one of these people who had a very interesting life. He had worked as a spy in World War One. had all these kind of adventures himself and channeled those experiences into his writing. And so I've been seeking out writers a little more like that, people who had these great experiences and then turned to writing. Do you have an author that you, you know, have to read everything that they write? When you hear they have a new novel or book out, you can't wait for? Jill Lepore, the, the historian, mm-hmm. is great. There's a writer, um, Rich Cohen. I've always enjoyed his writing. He's just a fun He's a fun writer, really brings the story alive. Since I write narrative nonfiction, a lot of narrative nonfiction types like, you know, Candace Millard or Nathaniel Philbrick, Mark Bowden. Um, I, I, there's a stable of writers in that genre that I always 
kind of seek out like a like a heat-seeking missile. I think that's why I was so drawn to Wanderlust because I felt like here is a book that I am loving and I'm learning about someone and I'm learning about history, like you said, the whole of the 20th century through this lens. Now I'm very much drawn to more nonfiction. Starting in the 50s, 60s, there were a couple of writers, like Alfred Lansing, Walter Lord. Walter Lord wrote the book that the movie Titanic was kind of based on, you know, about the, the two hours thinking of the Titanic or Lansing who wrote Endurance, the book about Shackleton. You started to have this, this great moment in nonfiction where if you found these stories, like, like Freiken's story is so fantastic and so weird. You know, the truth is way more bizarre than fiction would be. If you wrote it as fiction, people would be like, eh, well, yeah. So writing this, I really wanted to lean into narrative aspects like, like a fiction writer would do and kind of structure the story that way. I was given a gift by Freiken himself with all the writing he did. It could really bring you into a place so that as a nonfiction writer, I, I you know, could write about it with truthfulness. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you connected with it that way because that was kind of the point. You know, for a man whose life sort of resembled a novel, I, I wanted this book, even though it was nonfiction, to to have that same feel. And the other thing about it is when I wrote it, a lot of the writing happened during the lockdown and quarantine. So here I am writing about this person who's trotting all over the globe while everyone's stuck inside their houses. And, you know, at that time, people are escaping into movies, they're escaping into books. And I remember thinking, you know, the way I write this and how I structure it and what parts of his story I tell and how I present those stories, I want it to be an escape. Because at the time, in the depths of the pandemic, I was looking for escapes. You know, people are like, but oh, you want to watch, you know, talking about watching Contagion. I'm like, that's the last movie I'm going to watch in the middle of a pandemic. I was watching old musicals, you know, things from the 50s. I just wanted escapes. I wanted to go into these, these other worlds. Yeah. Well, maybe... You've answered this in part, but this can be drawn from anything, the world, personal life. What lights you up? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, Besides I, whiskey. Right. Well, I have a, a almost two and a half year old that we had during the pandemic. And there is a line from water where, you know, Freiken had this wonderful line where he talks about, so after he lost his foot, he was living on this little island in Denmark with a farm on it that he owned. And he had been separated from his kids for a very long time. And now he was able to kind of get to know his kids. Like his, his parents took care of Pippaluk, who is his daughter with Navarana. And his son Mikusak would go back and forth between Greenland and, and Denmark. And he started having his kids and their cousins and neighbor kids around the house while he was working. And he would write little plays for them. And he talks just about how much more enjoyable his life was with the soft patter. There's some line where he talks about the soft patter of feet, you know, with these kids just sort of playing out on the farm. Now that I have a, a two and a half year old, that line from him resonates a lot more. Like, I get it. I get it. And uh, so that lights me up. Little Milo, who we just heard screaming oh, in the background. <laughs> well, Reed, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And for everyone, we were talking about this incredible book that I'm so privileged to be you know, involved in the publishing of through Sugar 23 Books. It's been published through Mariner Books at HarperCollins. And it's Wonderlust. 
an eccentric explorer, an epic journey, a lost age by Reed. Thanks again. Well, thank you for having me on. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.